Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25. Let's get into this. This is good stuff. I'm going to read the entire section, and then we'll uh, focus on the last section there, 17 through 25. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David, "'Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are given and whose sins are covered.'" Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is so true. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it just for Jews but, or is it also for the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Answer, it was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness, close quote. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will also, or it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right. That is some good stuff right there. Now, 
in your outlines, or actually in your bulletins, you'll find an outline, and you, and you know if you've been with us, we're simply continuing to examine and draw out several truths from the faith of Abraham so that we might understand the role and nature of faith as it relates to our salvation. And over the last several weeks, a month now, over a month, we've looked at these truths, and the first one was, it was not by works, but rather by faith that Abraham was justified. We pulled that out of verses 1 through 8. Then the second one was, it was not by circumcision or religious ceremony, but rather by faith that Abraham was justified, declared right with God, verses 9 through 12. Then we looked at verses 13 through 16, and we saw there that the promise to Abraham cannot be attained, it cannot be realized through the law, but rather it is guaranteed, it's a surety to all who share the faith of Abraham. And now, finally, the last point we're going to draw out. We could draw more, but we're going to draw just one more. The faith of Abraham is representative of the kind of faith that justifies, the kind of faith that saves, the kind of faith that makes a person right with God. Abraham's faith is representative of that faith. That's what we're going to look at. So this morning, as we consider this last point, we're going to need to briefly look at the nature and character of Abraham's faith. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the nature and character of Abraham's faith, and hopefully at the end you will have a greater understanding of why this man Abraham, who lived 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, is still so relevant for us today. Okay? That's the goal. First, let me give you, and this is important, I'm going to read this and kind of say this slowly, let me give you a little historical context and we've, we've talked about this, but I'm trying to put every piece together as we keep adding pieces so that you get a big picture. I want to give you the historical context of these verses that are going to help you make better sense of what we just read in Romans. In ancient past, a very long, long time ago, God chose to make particular promises, special promises, to a man a specific man, a man named Abraham. Promises that are commonly referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Have you heard me say that before? The Abrahamic covenant, I've used that term? Okay. These promises, listen, these promises, they weren't just any promises. These promises necessitated and would ultimately lead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They necessitated and would ultimately lead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who would bring redemption and salvation to all the world, to all the families of the earth, to every nation. Okay? Now, according to God's divine plan, this great deliverer, the Christ, the one that we know now as the Lord Jesus, right? We've identified, we know who he is, we know who this Christ is. He's the Lord Jesus. This one would come through 
a specific nation. He would come through a specific nation, a nation that God would establish, a nation that God would make great, a nation that would become known, beloved, in history as the nation of Israel, a nation that did not exist when God made these promises to Abraham. It did not exist. But rather, a nation, listen, a nation that Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, do you know what I mean when I say barren? She couldn't have children. She, wasn't, she, couldn't, she was not producing children. It was a promise to Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, or a nation that Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, would eventually give birth to through a son that God promised would come directly from this couple. A son that we find out God actually named him Isaac. Isaac, he would be named Isaac. Now this son, just follow the logic, this son that God promised did not come right away. Rather, Sarah continued to remain childless for many years. Many years. In fact, it was when Abraham was near 100 years old, 100 years old, and his wife, 90 years old, or years young, however you want to say it, but you understand what I'm saying, right? It was then, at that time, that God affirmed again the promises he made to Abraham, which included, which necessitated the promise that he and Sarah would have a son. Now at that time, Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, were now far beyond the point of being able to have a child. It's, there's no hope. And yet, in spite of the circumstances, beloved, in spite of those circumstances, what we're going to find out is Abraham believed God. He believed God. He continued to have faith in the promise of God. He persisted in trusting in God and His Word. So with that, with that background, I left a lot of stuff out, but I'm just trying to grab the main thing. With that background, now we can look at verses 17 through 25, and hopefully they'll make more sense to you. Romans 4, 17, let's begin there. Paul writes, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, at the end of verse 16, At the end of verse 16, Paul states that Abraham is the father of us all. He's the father of us all. And if you were here last week, then you know I said that when he says that, it refers to all believers. All believers. In the context, that's what it means. All believers. Or as I said, the children of faith. The children of Abraham are those who share the faith of Abraham. You with me? That is both Jews and Gentiles who walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had. 
So Paul says that in verse 16, and now to scripturally support what he said at the end of verse 16, concerning Abraham being the father of us all, he quotes Genesis 17.5. Genesis 17.5 in the next verse. That's what he's quoting where he says, I have made you the father of many nations. That's a statement that God made. So he's relying on that quote from Genesis 17.5 to support his position that he just said, Abraham is the father of us all, all who believe. By the way, Abraham's name was originally Abram. Abram, A-B-R-A-M, or A-B-R-A-M, sorry, A-B-R-A-M, which simply means exalted father. But in Genesis 17, this passage he quotes from, in connection with the statement, I have made you the father of many nations, God at that moment changed Abram's name to Abraham. Abraham, which means the father of many, or the father of a multitude. I'll show you. Genesis 17, 5, you can see it right there. The Lord is speaking, and he says, No longer, he's speaking to Abram, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which means the father of a multitude, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, here's Abraham and Sarah. She's childless. She's childless. How in the world are all these things going to come about? Back to verse 17 in Romans 4. Now, what does Paul mean when after quoting Genesis 17, 5, I have made you the father of many nations, he adds these words. Look back at the text. In the presence of God, you see the little hyphen, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, well, there are some different views about exactly what Paul is getting at, but I think the best view is what Paul is doing here is he's drawing his reader's attention, those who are reading the book of Romans in the first century or those who have read it since, which would include us, he's drawing our attention to the character of God. He's drawing our attention to the character of God, the one in whom the presence of this promise was made and believed by Abraham. A promise that you should notice was made in the past tense. Look back at it. It was made in the past tense. See, God said, I have made you. (laughs) I've already done it. Not I will make you, but I have made you the father of many nations. God states it as it is an already accomplished fact, even though Sarah up to that point was barren, and unable to give Abraham a child, and they were now simply both too old to conceive a child, their bodies being as good as dead, as Paul will say in the text. So the point is this, the promise could only have been given with certainty and possibly believed and was believed by Abraham. It only could have been given and believed by Abraham because... Paul is saying, of who God is, of who he is. And here it is. He is the only one able to give life to the dead. He's the only one that can do this. 
And he's the only one that can call into existence the things that do not exist. Or as the NIV puts it, another translation of the Bible, God calls things that are not as though they were. As though they were. One writer puts it this way to try to summarize all that. What is Paul doing here? God can promise Abraham, and Abraham can believe that certain things not now existing will exist. Why? Because God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they were. God does that. God's the only one who can do that. So listen, what do I take from this? What's the lesson we can draw from from this? It is this. Listen, it's, it's good. Abraham's faith then, Abraham's faith was not simply wishful thinking. It was not simply wishful thinking or an irrational feeling or a blind leap into the darkness, beloved, which is how some people define Christian faith. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Oh, you guys are nuts. You just kind of take a blind leap into the dark. You're irrational. No, that's not true. Our faith, if it's genuine faith, is like the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham was a reasonable faith. It was a rational faith. It was a sensible faith. Why? Because it rested in the character of God the all-powerful one who is able to accomplish all of his purposes and keep every single one of his promises. That's why our faith is not irrational. That's why our faith is reasonable. That's why our faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It rests on and in God. And beloved, listen, ultimately faith is only as good, solid, as the object in which it is placed or put in. Let me give you an example. You can have faith that your piece of junk car is going to get you to work. Okay? You can, you can have all the faith you want. But i got to tell you something. That is wishful thinking. That actually is a rational behavior, a rational feeling. That is indeed a blind leap into the dark. Because what you're putting your faith in is probably going to let you down. It's illogical. That is not Christian faith. That is not Christian faith. It is not illogical. It is not irrational. It is not foolish. Faith in God and His power, believing Him to accomplish all that He promises that He will do, that is Abrahamic faith. Abrahamic faith or Abraham's faith rested in God, the one for whom nothing is too hard. That's what the prophet says in Jeremiah 32, 17. The one for whom nothing is too hard. Nothing, including the salvation of souls. Now in verses 18 through 21, Paul describes the nature or character of Abraham's faith. Go on with me this journey. It's exciting. And there's a good payoff at the end. Stay with me. Verses 18 through 21, Paul describes the nature or character of Abraham's faith. The one who believed God. This is him, Abraham, the one who believed God. Romans 4, verse 18. Look back at your text. In hope, Paul says, in hope he believed against hope 
that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Remember, that's back from Genesis 15. Remember? Remember he told Abraham? Because Abraham's like, hey, God, we still don't have a son. Abraham, look up into the sky and count the stars. So shall your descendants be, right? But still no child. Wife is barren. He doesn't even have a track record with his wife, okay? It's not like she had a bunch of kids and then she stopped having kids. She hasn't had any. She's now 90. And he's no young chicken. Abraham, though, believed against hope. What does that mean, believed against hope? That sounds as a strange way to say it. It simply means that the, po- that the point had arrived for Abraham and Sarah in, in their time in history, the point had arrived where there was no longer any human reason to have hope. There was no longer any human reason to have hope that he would become the father of many nations as God had promised. And yet the man believed God anyway. He believed him anyway. Why, beloved? Why? Was it because Abraham was just a fool? Was it because he was irrational? Illogical? No, because Abraham had a firm conviction about the power or ability of God to do exactly what he had promised. And so he believed. Look at the next verse. Romans 4.19. Paul goes further. He says, he did not weaken in faith. That is Abraham. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. <laughs> that's, think, that's a nice way to say that. Since he was about 100 years old. This is what I mean, Paul says. You understand what I'm saying? Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That's his wife. So listen, listen. This is good. It wasn't as if Abraham was living in a fantasy world. It wasn't as if Abraham was blind to his own circumstances or he was unwilling to face the cold, hard facts that faced him. He wasn't saying, I don't see it, I don't see it, and if I don't see it, it's not real. No, that's not what the text says. He was quite aware of the facts. He considered them carefully. He understood that his own body was as good as dead, and he knew that his wife, up to that point, had never been able to produce children. The NIV just translates that word barrenness because this is what it means in the original. Sarah's womb was also dead. That's what the word means, dead. Abraham's as good as dead, and his wife's womb is dead. There's no life to be found. There's no ability for them to produce life any longer. Do you understand? And yet God's telling him, making him this promise again. But instead of Abraham dwelling on his painful circumstances, which he could have, right? He kept looking to God. He kept trusting in God. He kept believing that God would do exactly, exactly what he had promised. Abraham knew, beloved, that he, he couldn't do anything about his sad situation. He couldn't do anything. There was no advanced medical technology back then where he could maybe rely on some Incredible procedure where he could fix this. There was, there was nothing he could do. His faith, beloved, wasn't in himself. It wasn't in himself. It was in God. It was in God because God's the one who gives life to the dead. And he's the one who calls those things that are not as though they were. Stick with me. 
Stick with me. Now, let's look at verses 20 through 21. Again, back at it. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I'm going to read it to you in the New American Standard Bible version because I think it's a little more helpful, a little more clear. That reads this way for verses 20 through 21. Beginning in verse 20, it says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. One writer, looking at those passages, speaking on this section, says this. Just listen. Abraham's faith was solidly God-centered. God-centered. He didn't believe in himself. He wasn't an optimist who practiced positive thinking. I mean, for some, beloved, that's what faith is. That's what they think faith is. It's, it's my ability to change my circumstances by the power of my faith. You don't have any power. I don't have any power. God alone has all power. So I must place my faith in him. So he says, if Sarah and I, you know, he's thinking, it's not positive thinking. Abraham wasn't thinking, you know, if Sarah and I just visualize the goal and try again, we'll succeed. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we just need to speak this thing into existence. Kind of focus on it and just say, you're pregnant, you're pregnant, you're pregnant. And then it'll be because I had faith. It's not that at all. Rather, looking away from the circumstances and away from himself. He's not looking to himself. He believed God. And his promise so that God got the glory. Beloved, listen. God's getting the glory here in Abraham's life because Abraham's faith glorifies God because it continues to say, God, you can. You can. You are all powerful. You will do this. Not only can you do it, not only are you able, God, and that makes God, that just displays how awesome he is, but you will, you are faithful, you keep your word. So as God, as Abraham continued to have faith in God, God was glorified in that. It would be a whole different story if he was looking to himself. Then he could glory in himself. No, the focus was on God. Abraham's confidence in the fulfillment of the promise, beloved, it was solely rooted in God and God's ability to make good on his promise, regardless of the real obstacles that Abraham faced, okay? Verse 22, stick with me. Paul says this, that is why, after saying all that, after chapter 4, here's the conclusion, that is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. Because, listen, because Abraham believed that God would do what he promised, because he believed God in spite of the circumstances, because of that, God credited righteousness to Abraham. God justified Abraham. One writer says this, Abraham's response of faith to God and God's promise to him 
was the human requirement for God's justifying Abraham, for God's declaring that Abraham stood righteous before him. Now, for clarity, just to make sure no one gets confused, it is not that Abraham's faith equaled righteousness. That is not what Paul is saying. It didn't equal righteousness, and it is not that his faith earned him righteousness. That is, neither, that is not the case either. But rather, as a result of Abraham's faith, God imputed or credited righteousness to Abraham, giving Abraham a righteous status before God, making Abraham fully and completely acceptable to God. Again, the main point of this chapter, as we have seen over the last several weeks, is that Abraham was justified or made right with God or saved, not through anything he had done, right? Not through anything he had done or through any righteousness of his own, but rather through simply believing and trusting that God would fulfill the promises that he made to him. And not just any promises, but promises that necessitated and led to the coming of Jesus Christ, the saving one. The saving one. Verse 23 through 25. We're almost done. In these verses now, Paul explicitly applies this entire lesson about Abraham and his faith to the Christian. He applies it right to the Christian, right to his Christian readers. And beloved, if that's you this morning, it's applying right to you now. Here's what Paul says. But the words, these words that we have recorded in Scripture, God breathed Scripture, these words, it was counted to him. He's, what was counted to him? His faith was counted to him as righteousness. Those words, they weren't written for his sake alone. They weren't written just for Abraham, but listen, for ours also. For ours also. It will be counted to us. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, here's the basic idea. Not only was Abraham justified by faith, okay? Not only was he justified by faith, but we who follow in the footsteps of Abraham, who share the faith of Abraham, are also justified by that same type of faith. God caused Moses. Moses was the author of Genesis. That's where these quotes are coming from that Paul keeps referring to. God caused Moses, the author of Genesis, to record the facts concerning Abraham so that Abraham might serve as an illustration for all people of all times of God's method of justification, of God's method of making people right before him. Abraham is the model. John MacArthur says this in his message here on this text, Abraham is an illustration of how anybody in any time period is saved by believing 
in the promises of God. By believing in the promises of God. We know that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, while Abraham's faith, listen, while Abraham's faith looked forward, it looked forward to what God was going to do. That through Abraham, ultimately, would come the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Deliverer. All of the promises are fulfilled, ultimately, in Christ. They're all leading up to necessitating Jesus Christ. As he looked forward to that, something that would occur 2,000 years later, actually, when Christ came. We, in a sense, by faith, look back to what God has done or accomplished in Christ and revealed to us. And we now believe God for that. We believe God for that. In other words, we now believe in the promise of God that through the Lord Jesus Christ, by His death and resurrection, we believe we will be saved. Is that not right? We believe, that's a promise, beloved. We believe that through Jesus Christ that all of our sin, all of it, past, present, and future, is forgiven. Is forgiven. Beloved, we believe that. We believe that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we have now been made alive in Jesus Christ. Made alive, beloved. We were dead. We were separated from God. But in Christ, reconciled back to Him. Beloved, that's a promise that we believe. We have new life in Christ. You've got to believe that. You've got to believe it. We believe that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we will escape the wrath of God. And that we will know the priceless blessings of eternal life with our Creator. We believe. We believe in these promises. And like Abraham, regardless of our circumstances, we must continue to believe. That God is able. Not only able, but He is faithful. Huh? He is able. He is faithful. Our faith is not irrational. It is not a blind leap into the dark. The one who made these promises is the one who gives life to the dead. We were dead and He gives us life. He is the one who calls things that are not as though they were. He looks at us and goes, saved, saint. And we go, huh? Righteous in my eyes. Uh That is what you are. And we believe. This is justifying faith. This is the faith that saves. This is Abrahamic faith. Now, I saved the best for last. 
I want to close our time with an application of this text. Very simple, but give you something to think about. That a, a great preacher of the 20th century preached in the same place in London for 30 years. This is what he said concerning this section of text, okay? And then I'm going to make some comments on it. Listen, it's good. The Christian is a person who, like Abraham of old, believes the word of God, believes his promises in spite of everything he knows to be true about himself. Listen how he links this. Abraham believed what God said to him in spite of the fact that he knew that he was almost 100 years old and in spite of the fact that he knew that Sarah's womb was dead. He goes on and then he says, what is justifying faith? What is the faith that makes us right with God, that saves us? It is a faith that believes what God says in Christ in spite of all that I know about myself. My past sins, my present sinfulness. Stop right there. And that's, he goes on. He keeps, he keeps expanding upon this. Listen to me now. Listen carefully, because this could be a misunderstood. He's saying, listen, people sometimes have a hard time believing that God can save them, that God can actually make them right with himself because of their mess of their life in the past, what they have done. And many times they only know. It's very private. No one else knows. But they know God knows. They go, there's no way God can save me. Brother or sister, you got to believe in spite of your circumstances. I don't care how messed up your life has been. God is the one who can give life to your dead soul. God is the one who can declare you righteous even though you are not. God is the one who can save you by his powerful hand. So I got to believe I got to have faith like Abraham. I got to hear what God has revealed to me in Jesus Christ and look to that and go, God, I'm betting on it completely. I'm putting all my confidence in it fully, not just now, but forever going forth. I believe. I trust you, God, that you are going to save me. You are going to deliver me into your kingdom. You are going to open the door because you have made me right with you through Jesus Christ. I believe. In spite of all my circumstances, I believe. How about this? How about present sinfulness? Okay, now listen. Listen. This is the one I wanted to talk to you about a little bit. We went through 1 John, so I would encourage you, if you weren't with us, I would encourage you to go back through that all the sermons are online. John, the Apostle John, says this in 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him, no one who abides in Christ, keeps on sinning. Did you hear what I said? Wow, whoa, that's heavy. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. I mean, he goes on, he says further, if you keep on, if you just have a, a lifestyle, a pattern of continual sin, you don't even know him. That's what John says, Okay? So I'm just, I'm making sure you understand where we're coming from here. 
That's a lifestyle that gives itself to sin. It has no problem with sin. It's not the only reason that lifestyle changes from sin is because they get arrested or their wife catches them or their husband. I'm not saying that wives don't sin, but you know what I'm talking about. That's, they're just turning from sin because they don't like the consequences. But it's not because their heart has been changed. It's not because they have a, a new life, a, the Holy Spirit living inside that is grieved to the core every time we sin. And you feel that, you feel that battle going on. You go, I can't, I can't keep doing this. And so by the power of God, you repent, you turn from sin, and there's a lifestyle pattern of doing this. And you know what happens? Your life begins to change. You start to become more characterized by one who is obedient to God and less so as disobedient to him, okay? That's what John is saying. But hear me, listen. This is what this pastor's talking about. Sometimes we are so sensitive, real Christians, real authentic Christians, they're so sensitive, so they still see sin in their life, and they go, man, I don't even know if I'm a believer. I don't even know if I'm saved. I'm struggling with this thing. I'm struggling. It's got a hold of me. I'm trying to get out. I want to get out. God, help me get out. And... What the pastor is saying is, stop looking at that for just a moment. Are you saved because you get out of that? Is is that what saves you? Or are you saved because you believe fully, in spite of your circumstances, in the promises of God? Do you hear me? Because Christians need this. They can become so overwhelmed. Should you repent of your sin? Yes. Yes. But if you're so beat up, so depressed, so discouraged all the time, and you're not looking to the promises of God. I see sin in my life and I go, man, it's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. But for me to get my head straight, I got to turn back to what God has revealed in his word and say, God, you call me a saint. I am declared righteous before you because of Jesus Christ. Even this nasty sin I just committed... I am forgiven of that sin as I turn to you and say, thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then my countenance changes. My spirit is uplifted. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Yes, I am blessed. I find strength and power to begin to now walk in the power of the Spirit of God that dwells inside of me. And I begin to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I begin to change. Do you see that? So as Paul says in in Philippians 3, 6, hey, I'm sure of this. I am sure of this. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Oh, Lord, I wish you'd bring it sooner than later. seriously, but I have to keep trusting. I have to keep believing in spite of my circumstances, in in spite of my weaknesses. Any of you got weaknesses? I'm not talking about the physical kind. In spite of all that, you are the one who gives life to you. You give life to the dead. You gave life to me. It's living inside of me. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the preservation of your word. Not only was it recorded, this book of Genesis and the life of Abraham. Father, we, we could be without it, but we're not. You, you specifically included it in your revelation, your written revelation to us. Your servant Moses recorded, he penned these words. And not only that, you have preserved them over thousands of years. Why? That we might have them. That we might be blessed by them. That we might look at Abraham and see an illustration of your method of making sinners right with yourself. This is all you ask, God that we look to you and that we believe what you have revealed. We believe your word. We believe your promises. We believe you are able and willing and faithful and you will do what you have promised to do. That is all you ask. And you do the rest. We receive by faith faith, this great gift of salvation. We believe that you make us right with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who has died for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Father, I, I thank you for this man, Abraham, and I thank you that we have him as an illustration. I trust and pray that we will see why he's so relevant for us today. But Lord, again, as always, I pray for those who have, who have yet to trust your promises, who have yet to put their confidence in you, who have yet to believe that it is through your Son and his death, his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death, his death on behalf of sinners and his resurrection, his glorious resurrection, his resurrection that demonstrates that all who believe in him will be justified. And yet, Father, they have yet to put their faith there. They have not trusted in you. No, they have not. Father, I pray again, as we often do, I pray, not only for those here, but for family members, that that might be what they would do now. And that by having this Abrahamic faith, by trusting in you, fully in you, and, and all that you have said, they would be justified and declared right with you. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.